Welcome to another episode of Design Emergency. I'm Paola Antonelli. And I'm Alice Rosthorn. So among the principles behind design emergency is that design is not only a vital creative practice, but also a unique way to understand the inner workings of the world, of society, of history, of economy, like any aspect in which humans interact with each other and with all ecosystems. Because design helps us tackle reality from a more active and even proactive level, which leads to another one of design's extraordinary powers that of being an agent of change and possibly positive change. Now, an immutable presence in our world is violence. It is immutable because it's always present, but it comes in myriad manifestations. And design helps us understand how has violence changed since centuries, years, or even just months ago? How has it remained the same? Is it always visible and recognizable, or is it sometimes subtle and really hidden. What are the implications of new modes of living and new technologies on violence? Well, we can deploy design to understand the manifestations of violence in the world today. So we're, we're using a tried and tested definition of violence as the power to alter circumstances against the will of others and to their detriment. Violence changes with history. It evolves with and in tune with our evolution, and it mutates opportunistically with every technological innovation and spreads with the adoption of new modes of living and communicating. So what happened since the last time that Alice and I spoke about violence, and that was June 2021? Well, let's begin. For instance, in chronological order, domestic terrorists invaded the U.S. Capitol. The Taliban took over Afghanistan following the withdrawal of international forces and led to a political and humanitarian crisis. The U.S. Supreme Court undermined the right to abortion in the U.S. And then reactionary moves all over the world by any means possible, from Italy cracking down on same-sex couples to Uganda criminalizing homosexuality, and attempts at judicial reforms in Israel and much more have happened everywhere. Not to mention that Russia invaded Ukraine, that Masa Amini was killed by the religious police in Iran. The COVID emergency has been declared over, but it's not really over. Extreme weather events occurring all over the world are happening with record-breaking heat waves, intense storms, and then AI has become mainstream, much as when computers left offices and became home computers. So these are just a few, and design is always there as problem solving, of course, but also as a way to manifest what the real issues are. And it's always been there, right? Even in the past, Alice. Of course. And that's where we're going to begin. Paula has given a, a brilliant analysis of the role of violence and design in our lives historically and in the present. And of course, a toxic truth about design, industrial design in particular, is that many of the greatest innovations have been direct products of violence. This is partly because in periods of violence, when rulers have sought to curb rebellions or fought against their rivals, the consequences of winning or losing are so extreme that they feel compelled to invest heavily in designing and producing ever deadlier weapons than their foes. 
And this has been true for centuries. 2,000 years ago, Ying Zheng, the teenage ruler of a tiny Asian province, Qin, focused his meagre resources on developing spears, daggers, swords, bows and arrows, which would be faster and more lethal than their predecessors, in an incredibly successful strategy to become the first emperor of China in 221 BC. And today, China and its fellow superpowers are doing the same by deploying advances in AI to design autonomous weapons that can mount attacks or defences with extreme precision and critically without human intervention, thereby radically reducing the cost and the risks of the owner of those weapons and radically increasing the damage caused to everyone else. But not all the innovations created by these epic spending sprees only produce tools of violence. Some end up also having beneficial consequences for very different and often surprising areas of our lives. Now, one is the impact of the pioneering standardised production invented by Ying Zheng's armories on mass manufacturing in the Industrial Age. Ying Zheng ensured that the optimum size, shape, material and method of production was identified for each type of weapon, from the blades of spears to the fastenings on dagger axes, and that each stage of the making process adhered to that formula. Manufacturers have since striven to do so ever since the Industrial Revolution. An even more sophisticated form of mass production was developed in the network of armories and shipyards at the Venice Arsenale from the 12th century onwards, and this is, of course, the part of Venice that currently houses part of Leslie Locco's acclaimed Venice Architecture Biennale. For 200 years, the Arsenale only made battleships, but from the early 14th century, it also made merchant vessels. And each component of those ships, from munitions to rigging, was made by specially trained workers in a specific area of the Arsenale. Canals were built throughout it so ships could float between sections as they were manufactured. And at its peak in the 1500s, the Arsenale employed 16,000 people and produced an entire ship every day. But the design expertise of its workforce also enabled it to pioneer the development of firearms to replace swords and crossbows, and both this work and its shipbuilding prowess were direct precursors of the assembly lines that have mass-produced textiles, food, clothing and cars in the industrial era. Now another tool of violence with an unexpected legacy was the depiction of epic military campaigns in the mid-19th century. In the forefront were what were called the carte figurative, or flow maps, made by a retired French engineer, Joseph Minard, to analyse the military tactics of great battles of the past. Now, the US political scientist Edward Tufte has written extensively on Minard in his books including what is considered to be Joseph Minard's masterpiece, a map of Napoleon's ill-fated invasion of Russia in 1812. By visualising the speed with which Napoleon's army dwindled from the 422,000 troops who entered Russia from Poland in June 1812 to the meagre 10,000 who returned in the bitterly cold winter that December, Minard enlightened military strategists while also illustrating the horror of war. 
And critically, his work is also hailed as an important influence on the recent emergence of the data visualisations composed by information designers like Federica Fregapane and Giorgia Lupi to explain complex, often contentious events so clearly and precisely that we're better able to understand them. Finally, the reverse also happens when design advances that were conceived with objectives that seemingly had nothing to do with violence have been reinvented as tools of war. A current example is DIIA, an app designed by 25 Ukrainian developers for their government before Vladimir Putin's illegal invasion of their country. It has enabled Ukraine's citizens to access first their car registration certificates and driver's licences, and then to file tax returns, registered births, deaths or marriages, and to apply for social security. Now, DIIA, which is both the Ukrainian word for action and an acronym for the state and me, was launched on the 6th of February 2000, 18 days before Vladimir Putin's heinous invasion. And as well as continuing to provide easy access for Ukrainians to access their official data during wartime, it now contributes to the Ukrainian war effort by enabling citizens to report on the movements of Russian troops, thereby providing crucial information or open source intelligence to the Ukrainian army incredibly quickly and incredibly precisely. So useful has the app proved in Ukraine that Colombia, Kosovo, Zambia and other countries are now developing their own versions of it. So back to you, Paula. Well, war is definitely one of the most visible and historical manifestations of violence. It's undoubtedly so, but so is another uh, much subtler, which is bigotry. You know, bigotry is the attachment to a belief, sometimes in an obstinate and unreasonable way, by a group uh, or a faction, and that it often translates into prejudice. And in some cases, this group that might be in power not necessarily is the majority. So it's what we call today also minority rule. So how to fight it? Well, design has a lot of weapons at its disposal that range from irony to direct action to just pointing out where that violence is happening and sensitizing people to it. Now we are talking at the very end of June, which is called Pride Month all over the world. And uh, Pride Month is, of course, symbolized by the rainbow flag. And the rainbow flag is a symbol of pride and community, of course. And it made its grand entrance during the San Francisco Gay and Lesbian Freedom Day Parade in 1978, on June 25th. And it was the brainchild of Gilbert Baker, who led a team of passionate volunteers who gathered at the Gay Community Center in San Francisco, armed with fabric and dye, and handcrafted these vibrant rainbow flags. It is interesting to know that Baker was inspired by the uh, U.S. flags that he had seen everywhere during the bicentennial celebrations of the United States in 1976. So in a way, to him, pride and pride in the United States and pride in uh, identity were one and the same. And of course, you know, the colors had particular symbology, pink signified sex, red signified life, orange healing, yellow sunshine, green nature, turquoise magic, and indigo serenity and violet spirit. And then new colors were added in history to 
find uh, to also represent other identity groups. And you know, the rainbow flag is a, a humble masterpiece of design. It's a, it's a work of design in its more essential form. It touches lives, it reminds us of the ongoing journey, and it really speaks today to the need to proceed towards equality. So um, up to another form of bigotry. You know, there are so many, I could make a long list. Ageism, the uh, discrimination of people that are of a certain age. I wouldn't be able to say what the threshold is, but people that are perceived as older and therefore less valuable to society. Emi Kiyota is an environmental gerontologist, or in other words, a person that studies how to integrate the elder, elderly population within the city and within the environment in a way that is seamless and is to the benefit of all. She has founded for this uh, an organization called ibasho.org. And the term ibasho comes from the Japanese language and translates into a place where one feels at home. And she has worked with ibasho in many different parts of the world, from Japan to the Philippines, Nepal, and also the United States. And now she's applying this to Singapore, to the Queenstown district. When you hear Kiyota speak, she sometimes says things that are counterintuitive to the rest of the world. For instance, she talks about the fact that elders don't want to be treated as elders. They don't want things to be made easier for them necessarily. They don't want others to make decisions for them. And the principles of Ibasha are very fascinating. Uh, one principle is that should be about building community spaces. So Ibasho wants to include all communities, elders included in these designs. Then there should be a participatory approach and the organization values the input and active involvement of older adults in decision-making and design processes. There's an attention to research and evaluation. So it's very important to understand the needs and aspirations of older adults in the different cultures where they live so as to create a space together that really works for them. And then it's also about building capacity. So making sure that there are programs for local community members that really make everybody feel involved and create age-friendly environments that cut across generations. So I think that this is really about cooperation and creating environments where everybody can thrive. And you know, there are some, some places called blue zones in the world, you know, some are in Japan, then there's Sardinia where I was born and another island in Greece, where people tend to live until they're beyond 100. And one of the principles, one of the facts that have been found in these locations is that generation live together. Designers can also transform bigotry into jealousy by, uh, by facing ableism and helping people that are differently able gain advantages over people that are so-called normally able. It happened before, for instance, with the disgraced runner from South Africa, Oscar Pistorius, uh, who then proceeded to kill his girlfriend and be judged for that. But before that, he was excluded from official races because he was perceived to have advantages because of his prosthetic legs. There is a, a specialist at the University of Cambridge's Plasticity Lab, Danny Claude, who studies the neuroscience of assistive devices and has designed prosthetics for superheroes, in other words. So instead of making devices that mimic the appearance of a normal arm or leg, she uh, 
she creates fantastical prosthetics that actually um, might be like tentacles or have powers that so-called normally able people don't have. And they believe that these devices can not only help uh, differently abled people have function in a world made for others, but also thrive and actually look more powerful than everybody else. So you can see how all of the bigotry that we spoke about is only an example of the bigotry that we can find in the world. But designers are there always to try and, uh, and face it. Yes, they are. And I'm going to talk about ways in which design is directly protecting people from violence. And much of that violence was, of course, engendered by the kind of bigotry and prejudice that Paula has talked about. And the need to protect us from violence is unfortunately becoming ever more important in an increasingly dangerous world. But thankfully, thanks to design ingenuity, there's no shortage of inspiring examples. And I'm going to start with an urgently needed form of protection for people who desperately need it. And this is the provision of safe spaces for women in the Rohingya refugee camps in the Cox's Bazaar area of Bangladesh. Now, Cox's Bazaar houses the world's largest refugee settlement, as over 800,000 Rohingya have fled there from Myanmar to escape genocide. Most arrive understandably deeply traumatised by that experience, only to find that criminality and violence are rife in many parts of the camps, and that women and girls are particularly vulnerable to abuse, assault and rape. So in a bid to improve conditions there, an NGO based in Dakar, the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, commissioned three Bangladeshi architects Kwaya Fatmi, Ritvi Hassan and Saad Ben Mustafa, all of whom have experience of working with refugees to design six community spaces, including several women's safe or women-friendly spaces. The women's spaces are built from the same traditional, locally available materials such as bamboo, brick and betel nut trees as the other areas, but spatially they're designed specifically to enable women and girls to mix together and to participate in learning activities in calm, private spaces where they feel protected and critically cannot be seen by anyone else and collectively the project won an Aga Khan Architecture Award last year. Elsewhere, advances in technology are enabling new ways of protecting ourselves and others against violence. And among them is the mobile app Safety Pin, launched in India in 2013 by Kalpana Viswanath, the sociologist and women's rights activist, and the technologist Ashish Bazu, to develop mobile safety apps that are designed to help to, and I quote, build a world where everyone can move around without fear, especially women. The name refers to the safety pins carried by many Indian women as DIY ways to defend themselves against harassment, bullying and other forms of abuse and violence in public places. And the app helps people to choose safe routes around towns and cities by crowdsourcing data to assess them in terms of their lighting, openness, visibility, whether other people, particularly other women and children, are nearby, and security guards or police officers, and also the availability of public transport, so people can plan their routes knowing that they're likely to be safer by taking them. And um, these routes are automatically collated 
by the app and are then pinned to the centre of the map on the screen, another allusion to Safety Pin. And having started in Delhi, Safety Pin expanded by designing apps for other Indian cities and is now active in other countries, including Brazil, Cambodia, Colombia, Kenya, Mexico and Vietnam, with over 100,000 global users. And all of those users are encouraged to send relevant information to Safety Pin, any tips they have about potential problems or indeed um, safety benefits in certain areas. And Safety Pin analyzes the data to advise governments and local councils on safety issues for the public, such as improvements in lighting, cycle lanes and public transport. And another tech-driven innovation to defenders against violence is HarassWatch, an Instagram feed and website which makes a crucial contribution to the courageous protests against the suppression of human rights in Iran, which Paula alluded to earlier, by charting and analysing real-life examples of violence, harassment and abuse, the sort of issues that the mainstream media in Iran obviously has not covered for a very long time. So an example on Harass Watch of recent posts is the arrest of five trans women by police in Tehran. There are also frequent posts on student protests across the country against their university's attempts to control students' behaviour, on the grounds of accusing women of breaching the rules on hijab wearing or censoring male students for having long hair. Other posts report on people who've been imprisoned over the content of their social media feeds and on the exclusion of members of the National Library for suspected non-compliance with Islamic affairs. Other people reflect on their very personal experiences of rape, violence and other forms of bigotry, including racism, homophobia and transphobia. Now, some of the activists who post on Harris Watch disguise their identities by obscuring their faces in their photographs in the post to protect their privacy and elude the authorities, but others show their faces. But for all of them, all these people who've shown such courage and determination at a horrific and very perilous time in Iran... Creating this forum to share information, experiences and insights is absolutely invaluable, not only in practical terms in giving warnings and advice to other people, but emotionally in raising their spirits. And my final example is of a design initiative that does precisely that by honouring the memory of vulnerable people who have already lost their lives to violence. This is the Jardin d'Afrique, a cemetery and garden designed and built in the Tunisian coastal town of Zazis by the Algerian artist and urbanist Rashid Karechi. It's a cemetery for asylum seekers who drowned while on people smugglers' crossings to Europe and whose corpses washed up on the beaches of Zarsis only to be dumped in local landfill sites. Qureshi, whose brother drowned in the Mediterranean in 1962, decided to create a place where their corpses could be identified to help their families to locate them and to bury them with dignity. Funding the project himself, he bought a large plot of farmland on the coast next to one of the biggest dumps where many corpses had been abandoned. And helped by asylum seekers, he transformed it into the Jardin d'Afrique by designing and building a cemetery for 600 non-denominational graves, an interfaith prayer hall, a morgue, doctor's office, meeting room and a small home for the caretaker who looks after the site. The Jardin d'Afrique is an extraordinarily beautiful place, 
and it was painstakingly planned to evoke peace, calm and healing from its shady olive and orange trees, the scented herbs and flowers that are planted throughout it, to a 17th century door at the entrance, which was designed specifically to be so low that people automatically and instinctively stoop in a gesture of respect upon arrival, and it's painted in a vibrant shade of yellow to signal hope and happiness, just as yellow did on the rainbow flag. Yeah, beauty and elegance and grace under pressure are some of the weapons that design has uh, against violence. It doesn't solve the problem, but it sensitizes people and it reminds the world that there's another plane to aspire to. And I have to say that the world catches up and new types of violence get acknowledged, new types of violence that have existed forever, but were not just called violence by their name, by its name, and others instead that are just now emerging. Uh, one type of violence that has existed for a long time but has gained new attention in the past few decades is, of course, the violence against nature. Environmental depletion at a global scale can be answered by a thoughtful response at the local scale. And I'm talking in this case about individuals. It's the case, you know, thoughtful response at a local scale is the kind of philosophy that is uh, presented, that is proposed by Atelier Luma, which is a design and research lab that is based in Arles in France and is part of the bigger Luma Foundation. The atelier is run by Jan Bolen with an amazing group of scholars and designers, and it has created an environment where artists, farmers, biologists, engineers can actually collaborate and work together into finding and uh, designing new sustainable materials. And of course, it's based there in Arles, but it also has moved in different parts of the world not to export its own materials and its own projects, but rather to help people in those different places come up with their own ideas and their own materials. Recently, there was a presentation in Milan during Design Week in Alcoba, and uh, people were really fascinated by the kind of objects that were presented there because they were gorgeous objects. They were made with bioplastics. They were made using the most sustainable and least foot print methodologies possible, but they were as seductive and elegant as any. Uh, there were some cylindrical stools that were made with recycled bioplastics and microalgae and other plant materials. There were some uh, columns that were made with compressed salt, because near Arles there are the famous salt deposits in France. There were even, and that was one of my favorite pieces, there were handles, handles for doors that were made of compressed salt. Now, salt has microbacterial properties. So even that was a double whammy towards sustainability, using the materials at disposal in the location and also having properties that were desired, that are desired, especially after the COVID pandemic, and that are uh, available already built within the material. Um, one of the strongest counters is indigenous knowledge. And it's a counter not only to the systemic racist, systemic violence between people, amongst people, but also towards nature. Now, 
we can remember Alice's beautiful interview with Julia Watson, who's been uh, working on that particular subject for a long time. And also Alice just mentioned the beautiful Biennale of Venice by Leslie Loco this year. And I would like to bring the example of the pavilion that won the Golden Lion this year, which is the Terra Pavilion by Brazil. The curators are Gabriela de Matos and Paulo Tavares, and they focused on Earth. And the whole pavilion was filled and covered with earth. Those of you who have been to Venice might have seen a pavilion. It's a modernist pavilion. Imagine it all covered by earth with objects that were made of pressed earth. And everywhere, the sense of really being grounded and being in connection with Brazil's past and also with its future and with the need to learn from ancestral wisdom. What was beautiful is that a part of the exhibition was also a video, a video that spoke about Brasilia, you know, the capital of Brazil that was built in the 1960s when Joselino Kubitschek, the president of Brazil that was from a conservative party, had, had a dream during the night and he dreamt that a saint, a Catholic saint, told him to make a new capital in that particular land. And so he worked with a, a, a communist architect and a socialist urban planner and together they devised this new capital that in the legend was built in nobody's land, in this new land. Truth is, it was not nobody's land. There were indigenous people living there, especially the Quilombola communities who were forcibly displaced during the colonial era. And in the pavilion was a video, is a video for those of you that can still visit Venice, that really touched me because for the first time hearing the indigenous people in the 1970s talk about the fact that they, not others, had the solutions for the future, had a way forward, had a, a scope of nonviolence and a scope of connection with nature that others could not even imagine, really made me realize for the first time and viscerally what we really need to strive for. This idea of indigenous knowledge is a way forward that we need to really pursue. Of course, one of the newest forms of violence, newest because it comes with technology, is the form of violence that is connected to the digital world. Um, and there's like dozens of different types of cyber crimes, from denial of service attacks to identity theft to cyber stalking to social engineering, phishing, you name it. And there's an equal amount, an equal number of attempts to respond. But one of the most um, insidious new forms of violence is the one that that is provided by AI, now that AI has been domesticated. Of course, we've heard about AI for a really long time, but only now have we started to use it in our everyday life in a conscious way. Undoubtedly, the paranoia about AI and mounting technophobia about so many other powerful new technologies and their potential consequences is a chilling facet of contemporary life. But perhaps I'm being wildly over-optimistic, but I do believe that as a debate it could be very constructive because by reading about and discussing the positive and negative impacts of AI, people are increasingly aware that the quality of its design will play a crucial role in determining whether it will affect us for better or for worse, and are left in no doubt as to how devastating the latter could prove to be. Now, hopefully, this debate and those on all the other forms of violence we've discussed will raise awareness of the crucial importance of adopting an anticipatory approach to the design of AI software and everything else from the outset, 
by identifying potential problems and assessing how to eliminate or assuage them rather than continue to focus on possible benefits, sort of sales pitch style, as designers tended to do in the industrial age. Anticipatory design was the methodology that the great Laszlo Moulinage called for in the 1940s and is arguably even more urgently needed today as the sources and consequences of violence become ever stronger and more frightening. So Paola, thank you as ever for being a brilliant collaborator and co-conversationalist and thank you all for listening. You can find images of all the projects we've discussed on our Instagram feed at design.emergency and we look forward Forward to welcoming you back to Design Emergency very soon, when we'll be talking to another fascinating force in design now and in the future. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>